is People My Dog Would Like, where I get to speak with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today, my guest is Dr. Ben Horan. He's an award-winning associate professor with the, within the School of Engineering at Deakin University and a regular keynote speaker on the topic of virtual and augmented reality. Deakin University are on the bleeding edge of VR and AR tech in Australia and Ben plays a centre role in guiding the university and its growing number of industry partners in their application of the tech, which is transforming multiple sectors, which we'll talk about a bit today. We are already seeing its impact in education, retail, entertainment, tourism, sport, commercially, it's literally everywhere. Ben is the director of Deakin's Virtual Reality Lab, which sits inside the Centre for Advanced Design and Engineering Training, or CADET, as it's becoming known around Australia. In the lab, he and his team focus on both fundamental and applied research into VR, haptic and human-computer interaction paradigms. His technical expertise is in mechatronics, robotics, virtual reality and soft computing. He's a serious out-of-the-box thinker. He's big on solving problems by integrating multiple technologies to provide solutions where using a traditional approach made for limited outcomes. He's a blue sky thinker, constantly working on new ways of applying VR and haptic technology to a problem, which creates a more human-centred way to learn and understand, and in doing so, unlocking huge potential for the future of education and sectors such as tourism and entertainment. He's also a dad and just about to have another baby this week. So I'm completely honoured that I've been given his time, his time to be guest on the show. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you, Lizzie. It's a pleasure to be here. That's good. Now, listen, how are you feeling? You, we should be on high alert, really, given that you're due this week. Yes, look, I'm keeping the phone close by and um, I could get a call any time now, so it's certainly an exciting week. Okay. So I need to say I'm pretty fascinated at this whole subject and obviously you are too. What was it about VR that drew you to it? Look, I've been working in virtual reality for quite a while. So I did my PhD, uh, which started in 2006, in using virtual reality and, and haptic interaction. So, so the, uh, providing technologies where people like whereby people can feel what's happening in a virtual world. So that's like that's what haptic means. That's what haptic means. So if we think of um, yeah, examples the, are great. So the, the Daytona um, racing um, car game you might have used at a time zone or an arcade and when you sort of drive to the edge of the track and you'd, you'd feel the, the rumble of, uh, through mm. the steering wheel is a, is a primitive but um, uh, haptic feedback nonetheless. So looking at how we can incorporate those types of technologies into virtual reality experiences. What's really exciting now is that virtual reality is available to everybody. Anybody with a computer that can afford to go out and buy a headset or even those with a smartphone can access different types of virtual reality. So it's really bringing it to the masses and opens up a whole range of opportunities which, which literally weren't there two or three years ago. So, but what, you know, you say you've been doing this for a few years, but what, what drew you to it? I mean, it's pretty new tech. So what was it when you were a young Ben studying engineering that, that made you think, I'm going to head into that space? 
Yeah, look, I can, I can remember the exact moment when I sort of uh, decided to go down this route and I was visiting a research lab and they had some uh, research-grade haptic devices on, on display which were demonstrating some medical applications. So using this device, you could push a virtual needle. Um, I think it was for, for training for people for performing an epidural. And being oh, able to... Oh, wow. Yes, and being able to use this device, feeling that the different layers of tissue and, and have to in, insert the needle appropriately really sparked my interest. And, and from then on, I knew, you know, I, I had to be a part of this. Um, so, you know, back, back then, you know, the visual and, and audio virtual reality was limited to large, expensive lab setups and, and, and wasn't available in, in the public. But still, for me, for me, being able to incorporate, the, you know, different sensory modalities in, into providing a solution, um, although ahead of its time, was, was, was fascinating and um, really got me going on this path. And did that happen here at Deakin? It did. It happened here at Deakin, yes. Yes, I was a third-year undergrad um, in, I think, 2004 and uh, went for a, for a tour as part of one of the classes we did. And, mm. and after that, realised I needed to do my final year project in, in this area and after that went on to pursue my PhD and I guess the rest is history. Yeah, okay, okay. So, listen, AR and VR are two different things. So can we talk about that? Um you know, I want to talk about the human aspect of them and what we can achieve with the tech, and obviously that'll be throughout this episode. But we hear a lot about the future. We see all the images of the, on the screens of VR and being immersed in our environments with massive headsets on. What's, what's happening in this space for you? Because sometimes when I've spoken to you in the past, um, what I've watched online is not what you're aware of. You're way ahead of what's, what I'm watching online. So, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, about the difference between AR and VA, VR for a start and what the space is like at the moment. Yeah, look, it's, it's a really good question. And virtual reality and, and augmented reality are, are different technologies, but um, underlying them are, are, are similar components. So with virtual reality, as you, you mentioned, people will typically put on a headset and they'll be exposed in a virtual world. So it provides us benefits when we want to access an environment which is difficult to access or doesn't exist. So imagine an occupational health and safety training scenario for a um, mine which has just collapsed. How can we provide people with access to that type of training environment without virtual reality? Augmented reality, on the other hand, overlays digital content, similar digital content to that which we would use in VR, but on top of a real-world view of the environment. So we can walk around, do things like we would normally do, but add digital overlays or augment our view of the real world. So while we use virtual reality to take us away from our current context and you know, provide us training or an experience somewhere else. Augmented reality is there to assist us in what we're doing. Probably the biggest difference between virtual reality and augmented reality at this point in time is that virtual reality has a range of commercially available headsets. So mm. you can use a mobile phone, attach it to something like the Samsung Gear VR or a range of other devices and have a virtual reality headset. Augmented reality, because we want to provide people with an overlay on top of their real view of the real environment, doesn't quite 
have that level of maturity where you can go out and buy a device off the shelf. Now, mm. people are close. The Microsoft HoloLens, you know, is expected to come out in the next couple of years. There are beta or development versions available now for, for research labs and developers. But there isn't a lot in, in the way of, of things you can buy off the shelf. But I expect when there is, it, it will provide a whole range of, of, of applications. So you can imagine walking down the street looking for a, a public restroom. And it, you know, will integrate to things like Google Maps and, and, and point the direction you need to go to where, where you're going. Perhaps if you think oh, of okay. even construction workers who need to, you know, know where they, um, you know, dig, right? Mm. So there's a dial before your dig service where you can you can ring up. But imagine having a virtual, an augmented reality headset and, and, and looking around the construction site and it's showing you where all the hazards are and where you can and can't operate. That's where I expect to see virtual reality going in the next few years. Virtual or augmented? Sorry, augmented reality. Yeah, because that's where I get confused. So, yeah, so it's the augmented. So I've always thought of augmented as being something that's like almost the Google glasses. There's something, some kind of either a screen on top of the screen of your normal glasses. Yep. Is it some, Is it going to be like that? It I is, mean, yeah. I look at the virtual sets and I think no one's going to wear those. Yes, yeah. Look, you, you're right. And, and the, the Google Glass was out for a while and now, now it's off the market and the HoloLens is looking like it's going to be the next device. It's still a little bit too large. But I think we need to remember to, to not constrain our thinking to the devices that are currently available. I think there'll be, there'll be a time in the future where we put on, you know, a sunglasses size headset. Yeah, so much smaller. Much smaller and project, perhaps it can project directly onto our eye. So we don't have to have a, a screen that we then look through, but it's projecting imagery onto our eye. That way we can, we can receive augmented reality content. So right. I think the, the need is there. People have, are now aware of what virtual reality can and can't do, what augmented reality can and can't do, and then technology will follow, enabling technologies. For virtual reality, you know, the current headsets are rather cumbersome but they, they do work reasonably well for, for gamers and those looking to undertake a particular training experience in a particular location. Mm. But for the most part, at the moment, they still are tethered to a large PC, so it's not the type of equipment you can easily cart around. Mm. But I do see them also getting, getting lighter, smaller and uh, more accessible as well. So if, I, if you, I mean, without breaching any confidentiality, you've clearly got brilliant partnerships and industry partners here at Deakin that you might may work on certain projects with. What kind of sectors do you feel are going to be um, impacted in the future? Look, in, in, from I mean, my you've perspective... You've talked about construction. Yeah, from my perspective... It's different because what I'm trying to work out is, okay, so VR's one element, AR's another element. So where do you see VR having the most impact? What sector... Or which sectors do you feel will have the most impact with VR? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really important, uh, really important question, and one I get asked a lot. And I think for both of them, it's it's education and training. Yeah. So virtual reality is being able to train people for scenarios they don't necessarily have access to. So if we think of flight simulation, forever, pilot commercial pilots have been trained for most of the time in a flight simulator and then about twenty percent of their time in a real aircraft. Mm. Virtual reality offers that. Um, opportunity for us. So if we think of you know, some of the pre-driver training that, that people currently undergo to get their licence, um, there's, the there's the element of assessment in the car with the, the driver, but 
as the you know the, the road authority the opportunity to, to put someone in an environment and test their ability to identify hazards and things like that is a, a prime candidate for virtual reality mm. augmented reality i also think is going to have the biggest impact in the education and training space but in real time so we can be provided with guidance and aids as we're performing a task in what to do so if you consider the same scenario of driving perhaps a, a a learner driver or a probationary driver while driving with an augmented reality headset or perhaps something a little bit different maybe a heads-up display in a car could also serve mm. a, a similar purpose uh, or, or a, a similar means to an end for augmented reality and display information on top of the screen you know you need to speed up you need to slow down your braking is you need erratic. to put your indicator on. You need to indicate all those sorts of things. So I think in both instances, although they, they do have different application domains, they're both going to have the biggest impact in education and training. Can you ever see a time when you'd be able to have both technologies um, merged into one headset? Yes, yeah, so certainly, certainly people are starting to talk about this and they're referring to it as XR. So we're removing the A and the V, the, the augmented and virtual, and, and it's, it's immersive reality. So the one device that can do that can do both is certainly oh, okay. on the horizon. I'm not, I haven't seen any devices which can, can do this directly, but um, it would offer obvious advantages. Yeah. Okay. So, listen. Another thing I was going to say was um, I'd noticed that Apple this year had hired uh, the AR and VR expert Jeff Norris from NASA. Did you come across that guy at all? He worked at what's it say? It said he worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab for the last eighteen years, which I read was clearly a signal that they're moving into the AR VR space very heavily. And given that the smartphone was a, as revolutionary as it was, I'm expecting this hire will be another potential revolution in the tech for their community. How do you view that? Yeah, look, I, I think if, if we look at um, all technology companies or companies that are util relying and utilising technology, virtual reality and augmented reality is on their roadmap um, to, to, to some degree. So in the case of NASA, they, they need to train astronauts and other people in, in operating in environments which they can't easily replicate mm. on Earth. So mm. Certainly can't access. No, they certainly can't access. So it comes back to that, you know... Ac education and training. Education and training. You know, I, I was uh, presenting at a conference recently and there was a, a Melbourne-based company there who have a contract with, with NASA and are looking at um, astronaut training in virtual reality. And, you know, it's quite... Um, inspiring to see a, a local company um, fr from Melbourne um, in, in the US competing with the big guys and and offering their expertise for, for for that purpose. So if we think about some of the environments that astronauts might be operating in, you know, zero gravity environments and, and, and things like that, that's where virtual reality and, and integration with other sensors can, can really help to provide a, a realistic training experience. So I'm trying to get my head around how they'd be able to replicate zero gravity with haptics that yes. would be the weirdest feeling it would be absolutely so so one of the approaches i'm aware of is putting people underwater so it's not the same but it's close so you put people underwater and then they they move around somewhat floating like they would be in a zero gravity environment okay then if you combine it with video and audio you can you can trick the person into to thinking that they're in that that type of environment wow so in that in that regards i guess the being underwater is a little bit like a full body Body haptic immersion yeah um, and you know that that crossover into you know other sensory modalities is really where I think there's a lot of opportunity and certainly what we're focusing on here at Deakin so just out of interest on that one in particular do they get then 
do you ask astronauts that have had that have felt zero gravity to to check this technology out and say, yeah, actually that feels very similar? Yeah, I think you know closing the loop is really important. So when evaluating any type of new technology, mm. we need to first develop the technology um, to make sure it, it can be done, and then bring in subject matter experts who have experienced the real thing and get their feedback and see where they can fine tune the experience. Now, virtual reality training experiences. You know, don't need to be perfect and 100% realistic to be valuable. If they're mm. providing access to an environment which simply doesn't exist, well, then, you know, so, you know some training is better than none. Yeah, you're kind of 90% there. Yes, and, you know, in the case of, you know, back to, to flight simulation training, you know, maybe the 80-20 rule is one that gets adopted. And we're still in the early days in, in, in virtual and augmented reality. There aren't any standards at the moment. There mm. aren't any guidelines. People like the IEEE, the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers, are focusing on, on developing a work working group who will later on look at look at standards but for the most part now it's it's borrowed from um the you know uh, web um page industry uh, computer gaming industry but you know immersive virtual reality and augmented reality brings a whole set of new challenges and we need to sort of keep on our toes to get the most out of the technology at the moment while trying to avoid any possible uh, pitfalls which we're not aware of yet just out of that out of interest how does australia fare in relation to the technology and its its research and advancements. Look, I, th- I think Australia, you know, um, bats above its, its average in in innovation. Mm. Not, uh, possibly on the commercialisation side of things, we have a, we have a, a lot of ground to make up, especially when comp- compared to places like the US. Yeah, I would have thought gaming, for instance, would be huge with VR over there. Yeah, look, but Australia and particularly Melbourne uh, are known for for computer gaming and and for the web um, internet industries and internet business as well and, okay. and bo- both skill sets play into virtual and augmented reality so as the virtual and augmented reality industries continue to evolve i do see melbourne you know um, uh, having having a presence just like you know the the uh, zero latency zero latency have a um, entertainment setup where you can go and shoot shoot zombies in virtual reality and they've overcome some of the challenges facing um, early virtual reality technologies so i mentioned earlier the tether the tether between between the, the headset and the computer, limiting mm. you to a workstation. They've developed a, a backpack you can wear and, and walk around. They've also developed safety systems so you don't run into others or run into walls. And now that technology is being sold all around the world for, for different applications. Mm. So I think we're certainly batting above our average, but we are still you know, a small country by contrast. Is there much collaboration? I mean, that would be, for me, what would be most interesting, knowing that the technology is out there, knowing how hugely impactful it could be for education and training it would be fabulous to think that universities and and institutions and organizations and companies were collaborating together is that happening is that happening at all or is, is it a competitive space Look, I think it's happening and it needs to happen. So in the case of virtual reality and augmented reality, they're new technologies and organisations are starting to see the benefits of them but can't necessarily, depending on the size of the organisation, of course, can't necessarily afford to have a whole R&D team looking at, at, at and, and trying um, pilot projects to see how well they fare. So this is where relationships with universities, who by their nature are set up to do to that research. type of thing, to do research, whether 
whether it's through, you know, PhD student projects, mm. undergraduate projects, or, 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 or researchers, you know, in their research activities. So, so I think I'm starting to see more and more of that. You know, that industry engagement, the, the interface between universities and companies, you know, people are starting to realise a mutual, mutually beneficial arrangement that that, that can be had. Mm. So, so. Can you give us an example of a couple of the projects or initiatives that you've worked on here that are commercially viable? That are that are potentially are, are there are there projects that are already out there? Yeah. Look, we one one project, um, our early, one of our earlier projects, and certainly a flagship project is the development of a midwifery trainer. So it enables people for the first time to be able to palpate the fundus of a a virtual woman in labour and feel the muscle contractions. So what this means is that midwives and others who need to be able to palpate for contractions can can learn to do so without having a, a real live pregnant woman. Mm. You can imagine a class of, of 60 midwifery students needing to, to learn that skill before they encounter it in the real world. Mm. At the moment, not having any technology to do so. So that was an innovation we developed in-house, filed a patent and are now working with companies to try to license the technology. So they would incorporate it into they're training simulators which can do everything else but but can't replicate um, those intrapartum muscle contractions. Mm. Another one is where we're working with Melbourne Water to look at how virtual reality training for OH&S can help them overcome some of their challenges they have with access to both the expert trainer and the piece of equipment they need to, to learn to train with. So they came to us with a problem and we're working together to develop a solution which could have implications to other industries as well. And we'll when that project finishes, we will um, have a look at where else it can potentially benefit others. Wow, okay. So what role do you think that tech will play in the future of tourism? I know I've got my own ideas about where I think it would be really um, timely and significantly impactful if it was placed in certain areas. What, What do you think? Look, it's an interesting question and and many people are um, interested in how virtual reality can help with tourism or how virtual tourism can can have a role in the way that we experience other places in the world. And I think it really comes into its own. If we talk about people that can't access the remote environments due to being time poor, financially poor or having limited mobility. Yeah. So somebody who can't walk very well, they're in a wheelchair, mm. how can they climb Mount Everest? Mm. You know, how can many most of us climb Mount Everest, but there still might be value in us doing so virtually. I think for an able-bodied person with all the time and money in the world, virtual reality won't get to the point where it will re- replace all, all the subtleties of the experience. So for the, you know, the smells of, you know, w- walking through a laneway in, in Paris, um, mm. you know, there aren't technologies around at the moment which we're able to do that. We can create the uh, visual side of things, the audio, being able to reach over and, and, and touch and, and feel things. We'd have to have a specific type of haptic technology and it'd be quite expensive and, and probably wouldn't work as well as, as the real thing, mm. the taste, the smell. But for those who who need to, you know, perhaps go on a field trip um, or multiple field trips as part of their year 10 um, course of study might find that that's a, a really 
really effective way of doing things. And again, if we come back to the 80-20 mantra and the all or nothing, perhaps they go on 10 virtual field trips and one real one and get exposure to a whole range of different cultures, which really wouldn't be possible otherwise. Right, because I was about to say, listen, I actually think that you want kids to get out there getting their hands dirty and visiting other cultures and actually... VR would only get 50% of the way there. So I understand that, that it's fully immersive, that, you know, you certainly access the other culture, but I don't know whether you would truly um, experience the other culture by not going there. Yeah, and you're right. And immersion is is, is the, the challenge here. How immersive do we find the experience and how close is it to a to, to, a, to a real experience that we experience in, in, in real life? And I think as researchers, we need to continue to push the boundaries to make sure that the adequate sensors are engaged, things look like they should, sound like they should, that there's artificial intelligence in the background so that if you interact with a person on the street, they, don't, they interact like a, a person and, and not a robot. But yeah. but you're right, that, that that's a long way off. And I, but I think if we're to look at the opportunity VR affords, if somebody was studying tourism and they needed to visit 100 different places around the world to get exposure to that type of, of diversity, it might be impossible for them to do so using conventional travel. However, however, with virtual reality, it's quite conceivable they could visit those 90 of those places in virtual reality or even 100 and then go back and visit 10 of them in, in, in the real world. So essentially, you know, they have that diversity as well as, this, as, well as pre-learning those real locations that they're going to visit. Yeah, and I guess for me when you talk like that, it sounds like people that might be working in the tourism industry, but I guess I'm talking about the, tourism, the tourists and for me, it was fascinating to hear um, uh, a very well-known, I guess, investor who um, has invested in VR recently say that his kids had the opportunity to experience a couple of countries, Machu Picchu and Rome, yeah. through a VR headset. And when they finished, they he said, oh, well, we'll be able to take you there and you'll be able to see it. And they said, but we've already visited. <laughs> we've already visited young kids. And yeah, I yeah. thought, wow, that was fascinating to me. So I thought, what impact would that have on the tourism industry if you've got kids saying, hey, I'll take you there, kids, but the kid's going, no, we've been there. Yes, I think with, with all technologies, we need to, to be aware of the limitations and make sure that we, um, yeah, don't sell ourselves short by being satisfied with, you know, watching a 360-degree video of Rome. Um, I think a lot goes... Well, marketing for, will just have to get a lot a lot smarter a lot or smarter and, savvier. I think it has a lot of potential, if done correctly, to entice people to go to those locations, yeah. but it needs to be curated and, and, um, and presented in, in, in such a way. I've always thought that it would be – I think we talked about it at some stage, fascinating to have like a little VR dome in an airport like Shanghai that allowed you to walk in there in the waiting room and experience what it was like to be in the outback of Australia to get people, more people to go, wow, that is so cool, I'm going to come to Australia. Yep. Our next holiday is going to be in Australia. Yeah, and I think if, if, if that's done correctly, pe people will want to go and visit those locations. And, you know, another interesting example I'm reminded of is uh, people with dementia 
using virtual, or well, their carers using virtual reality to be able yeah. to take them back to, to locations from their childhood. So, mm. you know, they, these uh, constitute a, class, you know, a group of people who, are for, due to their personal circumstances, aren't able to travel to, to certain locations. So providing them with a virtual reality experience, um, you know, if, if done correctly, could be of great value. Yeah. They simply wouldn't be able to get it otherwise. Yeah, and in, it, it would be bizarre, actually, to because I guess there'd be a lot of research around how they responded to visit revisiting those old places. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in my own experience, we shot a um, a dinosaur dig locally here in the Cape Otways, and wow. it was three sixty degree video, so it's a video shot from all vantage points simultaneously, and. We were there. It was a very um, exciting and exhausting experience. It was it was sunny. We had to trek, you know, large amounts of equipment down to the beach, and mm. one of our team members had heat stroke and all that sort of thing. But then later on, when experiencing that in the headset, it was amazing how it took me back to the space. Wow! So okay. it's video, it's audio. I wasn't feeling the sun. I couldn't smell the you know the, the, the salt air or anything like that. But I did feel like I was being transported back. So yeah. at the moment, it's a it's a completely open. Research area as to how well these types of experiences can can relate to a real one. I think it's going to be exciting to watch this area moving forward. I know. Well, if you could incorporate smells, that would be so powerful. I know if I walk into a place and I smell something, you know, we all walk into a, I don't know, a great Italian restaurant and you immediately smell the garlic and you think, oh, fantastic. Yes. And you know, the power, the power of the nose. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, so. So haptic technologies follow the, 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 you know, video and audio, and then when it comes to, to taste and smell, they're, they're very much in, in its infancy. But, you know, we'd, we'd like to hope that in, you know, 20 or 30 years' time there are devices able to replicate that. And I think that it'll come back to the challenge of where it makes the most sense to incorporate those type of technologies. Yeah. So as you say, if you are, or, you know, in a, in a location where it's um, important to be able to smell smell something because it's um, well, it's that's really a primary driver primary driver or is video it? enough you know so, yeah so these are the questions that that um, even in the context of just video audio and then haptic um, you know d d does is the cost worth it do we need to have that sense engaged or, or will video and audio which can be achieved with just a smartphone enough yeah and now listen I need to ask because you know I'm a woman you're a man and I I think that diversity is a good thing in your team do you have women working in the team to come up with some of these solutions? Yeah, look, it's, you know, most of our team come from a technology background. Yeah. And, um, the gender ratio is 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 skewed towards towards men, mm. um, but we do have uh, a female member of our team who is really fantastic and certainly brings different a different viewpoint to, to things, which which is is. Do you really? really I mean, do you really notice that? I mean, I'm sure you're not just saying it off the no, cuff. No, no, it, it really it changes the dynamic and. Um, Things aren't as dry, and and certainly when it comes to um, being creative, we get you know very different ideas, which we often often follow because I think yeah, as well, first of all, you know, as engineers, we start to think a certain way, and then without you know, I don't know, it's it's hard to say, but I think the same goes for cultural influences as well. Yeah, so we do have a culturally diverse team, and that, yeah. that's certainly a big part of of what we're doing. So, yes, I noticed that. We did work on a project which tried to address that, where we created a series of job interview virtual reality experiences. Yeah. 
And the idea being that people from different cultures can get an idea of what it's like to go to a job interview and there was sort of the job interview itself and there were different actors going through the scenarios and the interview panel as well as the behind the scenes. And to be able to give everybody, including those that have been brought up in Australia, an idea of what the the culture of a of a job interview is like, mm. so that, so, that pe- so people are on a an even playing field when entering that type of situation in, in real life. Mm. So I think you know gender diversity, culture diversity, and even um, subject matter expertise diversity is quite important. Our, our our midwifery project, which was a collaboration with the School of Nursing and Midwifery, mm. never would have happened had it not been for a chance encounter between us and and, and our colleagues over there. They brought a, a problem set to, yeah. to match to our skill set that it can, can, has come up with a unique solution. It certainly wouldn't have happened if we yeah. have sat inside our engineering And I guess box. that's where, exactly, that's where I'm coming from, that there are just uh, different ways of approaching a problem. And I think that men and women do approach problems differently. And yes, that, yes. that's, you know, the collaboration is very Powerful, powerful. And certainly, I think in this space, you know, where where we have all, all this potential in the technology, we're mm. not quite sure where it's going to land. It's important to sort of cast as wide a net as possible, yeah, yeah. and then start from there, rather than the other way around and say, you know, I, I want to work in this particular application. I'm going to, to 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 dig deeper. It's about sort of you know starting broad and then finding those applications. Stretching areas. the umbrella. Stretching the umbrella. Yes. Mm. Um, so what? What role do you think tech will, the tech will play in the future of retail? Look, I think I think. Well, imagine this. At the moment, retail. I'd also say, sorry to interrupt. I would include uh, property. So, like any sales. Yep is where I'm coming from. In terms of real estate, we've started to see virtual reality um, being used to help people have an idea of a property before going there in person. I think there's a lot of opportunity in other retail. So imagine mm. um, buying a new jacket. How confident would you be buying a jacket based on a picture on a website currently? I've failed mm. so many times. I, think I most always people, buy them. They're always too small, Ben. It's really hard to get I the size right. I think I'm getting right. too big. Imagine if there were, were a technology enabling you to try on that jacket yourself using augmented reality, making sure the size is correct, then placing your order and then having it delivered to your house a week later. Would that be something that interests you, do you Oh, think? my God, really? Is that going to happen? I hope so. I hope so because I too have, you know, I want to buy, buy a pair of shoes that are only available in America, but I'm not quite sure of the sizing. I know my shoe size, mm. but they vary from manufacturer to manufacturer. You'd really like to try it on. So currently the gap in, in e-commerce for, for, for things that you wear is the sizing. It's huge. It's a huge gap. It is a huge gap. That's the, that's the problem, isn't it, that they feel – and it's not even it's not even mitigated with um, the supplier saying, oh, we can, we can, you can return the goods and we'll give you a different size because it's just a hassle. It is. If you're a busy person, you're thinking, I don't have time to be trying it on, putting it back in the box, going to the post office, sending it back. Just It's a palaver. Yeah. It's just palaver written all over it for me. And even you know, having you know, nowadays dual income families, um, a lot of us are, are 
time poorer than perhaps our, the previous generation and having time to to go shopping when the shops are open and even when they are open on, on weekends maybe we want to spend that time on other things like families so yeah. being able to to log on you know to to your device at 7 p.m when you get home and um, try on some clothes you know press order and have it delivered perhaps by a drone in the, in the future yeah absolutely and arrive and there'd be a good chance of being the right size would be a massive step forward and one which i don't think is is is, is um, unfeasible i think it's just a matter of technology uh, catching up and people starting to realise, you know, some of the um, uh, potential of, of these different technologies. So how far away do you think that might be? Have you got a uh, guesstimate? Look, I'm hoping sooner rather than later because I um, am finding um, trouble finding t <laughs> time to go shopping. But I think the technologies can do it now. It's a matter of the particular sector getting on board and understanding how the technology can do it and perhaps some... And investing in it. Some serious, some savvy entrepreneurs ma making that happen. Mm. And I am starting to see a, you know, an entrepreneurial subculture appearing. It's nothing like what we'd you know, see in Silicon Valley um, mm. in the United States. But people that are willing to take a risk and, 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 and have a go at things. So I'd, I'd hope in, in, in the next two to three years. Mm. But if you're doing, if you're a young startup, surely you wouldn't have the kind of money that would be able to, or the kind of money to invest in in VR or AR. I think you know that. So, so I guess you could capital raise, but yeah. you know, from a from a side gig point of view, and the young entrepreneurs that we're looking at at the moment, I just yeah, I wouldn't have thought that they had that kind of money. There, there is invest. a bit of a gap. So so so. People that develop a new technology or a new piece of intellectual property that has a, a market do struggle in Australia to find angel investment so mm. that they can then, you know, sort of market the product, develop it more and get it out there. I think we need to, to work together to, to support this type of thinking and, and hopefully that, that type of um, support will emerge. But I am seeing an increase in the number of incubator accelerator type setups that are there to, to help these young entrepreneurs have a, a physical location, yep. be located um, alongside like-minded people, mm. to have a business mentor and to help try to get them kick-started. It's not going to help us overcome the fundamental challenge of, you know, people need to raise capital to get things yeah. off the ground. Yeah, I mean, and they can introduce them to the VCs, but all I'm they saying can. is that Scaling up's one thing, but introducing a technology that's extremely expensive potentially is another. I think we also need to think carefully about whether technologies need to be extremely expensive. And in some cases they do, but in others, mm. if we think about Uber, Uber has completely disrupted the, the taxi industry. Yeah. And if you think about it, the technology that one needs to buy to be an uber driver or, or used to be an uber driver is the it's smartphone nothing. and the internet yeah. connection the technology behind the scenes at uber would be servers and and developers now of course there is an inherent cost in getting that going but if we compare it to the cost of the physical infrastructure that was in place in terms of dedicated taxis mm. metering systems tracking systems and all that kind of thing there are instances where the technology that we already have can be used for different purposes. Mm. And I think that's the opportunity for a really nifty and, and, and budding young entrepreneur to see how they can capitalise that to the Yeah, because I'm just potential. trying to think of that app that's going to be able to be used, that's going to be able to try on that jacket or those shoes. I just I can't get my head around it quite yet. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think most of the technology is already there in, in a smartphone. Yeah. But um, it, it will require somebody to come up with a with a, a really smart system 
for doing so. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Maybe it's about process. Maybe retail stores provide you with your sizing information for their products and mm. then you can order online. So it doesn't necessarily all have to be done in an augmented reality mm. context. But but certainly I think there are lots in, – in order to try it on from home, maybe that's where augmented reality on a smartphone mm. pl- uh, um, plays a role. Mm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. I've still got this hideous cold. Um so I'm going to ask you a few questions as well in relation to um, some personal stuff that I often ask people. And so when you think of the word successful, who comes to mind? I think to me, being a, a technologist and an engineer and a researcher, you know, someone like Elon Musk, you know, to yep. be very cliche. But um, I think for me that the success... Success isn't isn't about money, but it's about you know changing the world. And, you know he's, he's he's amazing in his various different endeavors. You know just um, he you know, hacks Tesla, he, he, the SpaceX. way he hacks everything is just incredible. He does, yeah, it's amazing. So so Elon Musk would be at the the top of my list. Yes. Okay, yes. and what if any virtue we hold up as a virtue as important? Do you think is overrated? Oh, that's a, a a tough question. I can always I th- come back to that one, but you know, I just, sometimes I like to change it up a bit. We could keep talking about AR and VR, but I also like you. You know, you're a bright guy. I find people that are quite bright often go against the grain as well, and they do things differently. I think one one to me is um, this nine to five mentality. Yeah, I think. Lots of organisations and corporations are still, um, you know, wrapped or wrapped up in wrapped it. up in that. And, and, and someone who potentially sits in, at the desk from nine to five, uh, compared to somebody who who, who work who, who comes in late and then, and works till midnight, mm. is a model employee. And I think that's certainly overrated. But I, th- I think that that's starting to change. Some organisations are becoming a lot more agile and starting to realise that you know and, and remove stigmas from dialing into meetings and and, and doing things like that. And mm. I think it's overrated. Um, and by letting people work more to their style, you're going to get much, much better outcomes. So as a researcher, it's certainly um, flexibility is something that's that's encouraged and mm. I think really results in, in the best outcomes. So for me, it'd be great to see more of the sandstone organisations um, and, and corporates to move more towards a, you know, flexible hours, working from home, those types of... Uh, flexible hours and just and shared jobs. So people that don't want to work five days a week, I mean, I still look at um, opportunities out there and I think, gee, that looks really interesting. But there's no way I'd even bother because it's full time. And I think I just I wouldn't want to do that. And organisations are potentially losing the opportunity to have amazing Some amazing talents because who- they don't want to work or they've got a side gig or they're already they're contracted doing something, which is sometimes my case. And I think I couldn't I couldn't do I couldn't do that because I'd be working all weekend and then I'd have no time for family. Yep. So I think in, in many cases, not all, if objectives could be defined as opposed to you should be chained to this desk between these hours, you, you'd find that there'd be, you know, um, a, you know a lot more... Um, yeah, larger, flexibility. Larger, yep, and then the outcomes would potentially be better as well. Okay, and so um, do you have a story in your life where you feel you've 
I guess, failed in some way or um, had a massive hiccup, I don't know what you want to call it, and tell me what you've learned from that experience. Yeah, look, it's it's a good question. I think for me, working in, um, as, as you referred to, the bleeding edge, you know, mm. is inherently going to have failures. Um, I think the first thing I've learned is that there are degrees of failure. Almost all failure you can learn something from and, and you know, it's how you, you, you take that experience and then and then move forward from it. So, you know, many different um you know, I spoke about uh, our midwifery technology before, which has been reasonably successful in achieving the outcome that we wanted. But before that, we tried many different things, and they fail for different reasons. Mm. You can't resource them, and we also spoke about you know having that 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 capital to to get a project to a certain point. And mm. sometimes you know really good ideas that you know still to this day I think could be really valuable haven't haven't gone anywhere because we just we just can't resource it. So for me, I think it's about you know being confident in, in making the decisions you make at a certain point in time based on the information and experience you have available and then seeing them as learning experiences. And often, you know, multiple failures or perceived failures at that point in time then become a success because you wouldn't have gone down that particular path had you have not failed in those you know, previous things. I think we need to be careful that that, that failures are, um, aren't catastrophic, and you know, they, they they result in you know loss of employment, a loss of life savings, and um, you know, negative impacts on on one's health, health and all those sorts mm. of things. But I think that aside, if you know, we look at more at the American startup on entrepreneurship type culture, failure is something that's um, that's considered as a, a normal you know step along the way to success. Yeah, it's just another iteration. Isn't it? It is. It that is. often does they they talk about pivoting they to do. something else. And I think far, fast failure. You know, if you're going to, to do something, don't don't and, and and you think there's a chance it might fail, don't don't drag it along. Um, and pick yourself up quickly too. So fast failure is it might it may fail fast, or you may fail fast. But you know, picking yourself up quickly is a really great sign of resilience, and I think is something that people admire. In other people, they, they're seeing that resilience in them. Yes, and I think I think that resilience is a, yes, and, and resilience I think is is, un, is underrated um, as a, as a quality. You know, nowadays, you know, being resilient is um, I think just as important as being you know, skilled in a particular task, knowing how to to yeah, keep having going. that emotional intelligence. So, yeah, to sort of you know sit back and and, and um, see the forest through the through the trees, you know. It, you know, in this fast-changing technological landscape, which impacts all of our lives, mm. we, we need to to be able to um, fail, learn from it, move forward, and appreciate you know how others are are, are playing in the same space as well. Mm. You know, there, and I think also support each other. You know, when you're seeing people going through those cycles too, like if if you're on your own, I think it, I think. The ability to stay resilient is much harder. It is, yeah. I think as, as humans, you know, we're social beings. It's, yeah. it's, it's important. And I think it's one of the most valuable things of, of we mentioned before, incub- incubation and incubators. Having entrepreneurs around like-minded people that can share in their successes and their failures and distribute, you know, um, those across a larger group rather than being in isolation and then having, you know, to sort of pick yourself up by yourself mm. is, I think, uh, probably one of the most important elements of, of that type of model. Mm, there's a bunch of incubators that have actually um, 
popped up in the last couple of years. I mean, I'm, I certainly know we're in Geelong. I know of Runway Geelong, but, you know, there are a couple of great ones in Melbourne as well. Are there any new, fresh new ones that you know about? I'm familiar with, with Runway Geelong and, and, and Deakin here. We're going to launch an incubator accelerator in the next six months. Great. And uh, already some of our students and researchers have, um, you know, allocated locations in there. Mm. So ranging from students who want to commercialise one of their projects to researchers who are working with a partner to develop a new product which we shipped all over the world. I think it's a, it's a, it's a really critical piece of, of the puzzle mm. to make sure that um, innovative ideas can go on to become businesses and products. Mm. And, you know, they don't have to issue of legacy systems that they have to work through to try and, you know, produce a product either. They're small, they're nimble, they can throw something out there and iterate and, and be far more likely to succeed if they've got a university helping them out too. They can. And they're, you know, in and amongst, you know, great, great people with great ideas as well. Yeah. So it's um, an opportunity for, for a wider range of people to get involved and, you know, for, for broader mentoring than perhaps the incubator itself might just provide. You know, yeah. There are a whole range of academics working in this area and, um you know, one thing I've learned about, you know, throughout my time in academia is, that, you know, people are, are always more than happy to, to share their ideas and thoughts on, on what you're doing. And it's up to you to sort of, you know, take all that knowledge and then again, you and know, use it. and use it to, to, to advance what you're doing. Okay. Um, what do you see as being the most game-changing technology that's going to have a transformational impact on our lives in the future? Look, I think I'm, I'm, I'm certainly biased here. I think immersive reality, but I think that it's also the data underlying that. You know, virtual reality and augmented reality are tools for experiencing either environments we don't have access to yet or they, they just don't exist or information which sits on top of um, our real-world context. Mm. So, you know, the amount of data that's being collected um, and generated is, is astronomical. We have data on the internet. We have data from our wearables, mm. our, our data collected by our cars. All that data is, is is valuable to us, but I see there being a big gap in how we as humans utilise that data. So if we consider the way that we interact <coughs> with web pages, it really hasn't changed in the last 15 years. We sit down at a keyboard, we have a look at a 2D screen. Mm. Sure, there's some audio, there are some um, incremental advances in things like, you know, uh, text-to-speech for people who have uh, vision impairments. Yeah. Um, we can talk to our phone and, 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 OK, Google, find me this. But, but still, I think... Augmented reality and virtual reality are really going to open up that interface to to different ways of interacting that we can't even imagine. Mm. So in augmented reality, walking around, doing our, our daily thing and having information coming to us based on the context that we're in. So the data having been crunched, you mean? Having been crunched, mined, extracted and then presented to us so it can help us make more informed decisions, yeah. decisions that we may not have been aware of needing to make so we could be going to park the car and it might say oh hold on a second you know you realize you can park the car across the road for half the price yeah or did you realize the fuel's cheaper at this particular station so at the moment that information's wow so all it's available. like a personal assistant you think so a personal assistant that then doesn't or a distract you from, assistant <laughs> i think a, a bit of both yeah 
And we're starting to see, you know, things like, you know, uh, Google Home popping up in, in you know, as, as a device. Yeah, and I've been that, reading a lot about that lately. And again, you know, it's providing an interface, to, a, a text or, sorry, a verbal um, speech interface to the internet. But I think mm. what augmented reality and virtual reality do is enable us to interact with 3D worlds in a 3D way. I think that's going to be game-changing. I think it's going to be disruptive. But it requires people from many different areas of specialty to work together to, to see what that looks like. So what are what areas are there? Because we all talk about the future of work as well and there's a big fear around people losing their work, their jobs, and having to sidestep into something else. Where What are some of those you know, areas that you talk about? I think engineering is certainly a, a, a big a big one. Mm. Um, there are various different facets of engineering, but software engineering, computer engineering. Yeah. So are they the kinds of people that will be doing the, the data analysis in your mind? F- f- uh, some of them will be. Computer mm. scientists will be. Mathematicians. Mm. Um, you know, da- data science is, is underlying, you know, how we access and, and use data for particular applications. And... It's going to be a it's it's an emerging occupation, an emerging field, and it will continue to to, to grow exponentially. I think, mm. and I think it'll be data scientists in conjunction with others to to create the the full solution that we then utilise. So, jobs in information technology, engineering, data science, mathematics, science. So, more or less, you know, those that exist under the the STEM umbrella: science, technology, mm. engineering, and mathematics. Acknowledging that some of those fields don't yet exist and they'll continue to merge. But I think that the, the skill sets that underlie those will be in that, that, that STEM realm. I hope there's a steam in there too, though, Ben, because I do genuinely think that if it's so focused on the numbers that sometimes you miss the problem-solving aspects of the being human part of it. Yes, yeah. I'd agree with you. And, you know, for, for a lot of what we do, we need industrial designers who, who yeah. come from... Um, who are a, a female. Des- who, are, who are female, yes, a lot of them. So I think... So we can design products around being that, a that woman. That are usable and you, you understand or how to use them. Having a car that's a female design, a car for females in it. You know, yeah, I was reading recently, uh, I guess it was biased, but it wasn't biased. It was fascinating reading about... Um, the design of cars and, you know, whilst we've got designs of cars that incorporate a holder for your coffee, we don't have a holder for your shoes. Yep. And women aren't meant to wear shoes. They're high heels in a yep. car. It ruins them. But is there anywhere to put them? Oh, no, I'll just put them on the seat because none of the designers have thought, oh, we're going to have a little spot for where we can put the shoes that women need to take off when they're driving the car or their handbag. You know, and that was just one example. And I thought, wow, I could apply that to nearly everything in my life where I feel that actually man must have designed that. A man must have designed that or a team of men must have designed it. Yeah, I think you're right. and You don't have to go too far to find examples. And once you, you see one, once you, you start see to one, you more. start to look at all the examples where you think, God, actually that doesn't quite work for a woman and that's when I start going wow the possibilities are endless you know so if you're crunching data if you're getting industrial designers to produce different kinds of products I think god there's so many potential jobs out there 
Yes, I think I think absolutely, and you know, in the in the case of the, the vehicle that you mentioned, you know, designed by men. Perhaps autonomous vehicles are the, the chance to sort of move away from that legacy design and do things yeah. differently because we, yeah. we may not have a steering wheel in future autonomous right. vehicles. So we may have a completely redesigned cabin that's more about your experience when you're in the car and and perhaps provides an opportunity for that type of thing. But yeah. I think, you know, Leapfrog the old design and go, actually, we don't need to design it like that anymore. That was old. That was legacy thinking and quite patriarchal, you know. I think it's, you know, just like my own journey, it's an opportunity for everybody to be involved in how we shape the future. Mm. So people that are in high school now and thinking about what subjects they're going to do to go on to, you know, study at university perhaps and then um, become a designer or become an engineer, that they can play quite a significant role in this very exciting time in history and um, help to overcome some of those challenges. Um, That's great. Like all right, I'm gonna have to edit that out. Oh my god! So I wasn't expecting that. I think there is a there is a button over here. It could be fine. Oh my god, that's so hilarious. Sorry, I'll I'll have to edit that out because what I was saying when the music was on was it's a long form interview that I don't edit usually because I like it to be quite natural. Yeah. So I'll edit all of this bit of it out. Sure. Okay. Now. Um, what are your goals? Oh, should I actually know? What is one daily habit or hack or routine that you have that you feel contributes to your success? I think um, coffee is, is quite important. Um, You're hilarious. Fortunately, <laughs> living in, living <laughs> yes. in Melbourne, um, it's coffee. great. To, yeah, good, good coffee. And um, certainly here at the university, there are no shortage of cafes. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part. But I think... Big part of uni culture. Big part of uni culture. And um, yes, yeah, sort of getting the brain activated to, to do the day's work. Probably, I think a habit would, a positive habit would be, you know, interacting with with others and just listening to what they're doing, even if it's in a completely different area. So um, to, to inspire you. So, you know, the, the brilliant and, and fantastic thing about working in an organisation like a university is that there are so many people doing so many different exciting things. So yeah. so having the opportunity maybe while making a coffee to, to talk to them about what they're doing. And and um, I find it, it often inspires ideas either directly or indirectly in, 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 in what you're doing. So I'd say that's a... It's a really valuable habit that I've got into and I find um, helps me, yeah, on almost a daily basis. And listen, as I said before, you've got a pretty stellar career and it's going exponentially at the moment. What are your goals in the next five years? I think for, for, for me, I, I think I'd like to continue to work in, in technology. It's, um, it's exciting. We're, we're seeing, you know, advances that are unprecedented you know working with uh, students is is fantastic I think I'd like to continue to to do that um, I think naturally one ends up going more into a leadership role so um, I may not be sitting down writing the code and, and, and designing things myself but to still be be you know uh, involved in that and helping to facilitate make that happen would be where you know I'd love to be in in five or ten years. 
Sounds pretty... I, I totally understand that. Especially with that sort of emerging or, or growing interface between academia and industry, you know, it's... Yeah. It's... Um, we're not operating in silos. A lot of what we do directly impacts what happens in industry. So this way we get to provide thought leadership and collaborate with industry to create new things but then also see them being used in practice in a, you know, a very yeah, short amount of time. Yeah, which is fabulous if you're in a, university, in a university setting. It is, absolutely. And last but not least, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self if you sat down and had a cup of coffee with him? I think I'd say um, be confident in yourself. You know, I probably spent a lot of time um, doubting myself and I, I don't think it benefited me whatsoever. Mm. Anything I, I wasted time. Um, and probably to, to seek out, if possible, great mentors. I think great mentors are, are priceless. And my 20-year-old self didn't know what a mentor was. Yeah, okay. I knew what the word was, but I, I didn't know what a mentor was. And I'm finding, you know, that, that I was just naturally lucky to have after that, you know, mid-20s, fantastic mentors, which just offer so much insight and in, 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 in help you to, to get where you want to be. So it'd be, yeah, seek, you know, to understand the value of a mentor and, and seek them out. And I think you can have, you know, you don't need to have just one. You can have a mentor in, uh, your, you know, how to deal with things in your personal life, a mentor, and how to deal with things in your work life, and um, it doesn't need to be uh, just one. So that would be the probably the biggest piece of advice I could give myself or anyone in their twenties, really. Mm. I lied. I've got another question okay, because of what you've just said. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Take that as a compliment. So yeah, so uh, because of the way that you reflected on that, I'm interested to know who in your life has influenced you the most. Do you think? I think for me. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in high school. So, so the decision to go on to university and study engineering, which then led, led to where I am now, was because I was good with STEM subjects, yep. right? Um, so good with mathematics and physics and it came naturally. So the, mm. the natural progression from that was, why don't you study engineering? And it was, it was the right thing for me to do. Um, it always scares me a little bit that, you know, some people – um, you know, aren't that lucky and they may go and try. But I think it's important to remember it's okay to try different things and to move around and you know, study one thing or try a certain type of occupation and then move and, and, and do others. Um, and what was, the, what was the question again? I've been... No, that's so okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. The influence. So it's, oh, influence, it's that sorry. feeling of like, so you've clearly had a fairly direction full career and I'm wondering if there's a figure or maybe a couple of figures in your life that you feel has had a really big impact on you know who you are I think the decisions you've made yeah I think I, I you know in terms of people that I know personally that have influenced the decisions I've made or, or provide mentorship that's that's uh, contributed to that would be numerous but if, in terms of um, people that, that, that have inspired me, I think, you know, Steve Jobs and the way that he, you know, contributed to transforming everything, like your, your Apple laptop here, mm. the, the iPhones, iPods, iPads, mm. 
you know. Um, it was I, a revolution. It was wasn't a revolution, it? and I was in primary school when um, we had an Apple IIe, and it had a green and black screen, and you had to insert a, a large floppy disk, mm. and um, there was one computer for the classroom. We were lucky to have that computer, and if you finished early, you got to go and play a very primitive game. And then progress through the the IBM, and then to, to to later on, you know, reflect on on Steve Jobs' journey through his biography, and um, hopefully next month meet Steve Wozniak at the Pivot Summit held at the Runway Geelong event. Will mm. we, you know, if if I get the opportunity to meet him and show him some of the things that that I'm doing, would be fantastic. And it's just 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 amazing to think how that combination that you know Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, really did change the world. Mm. Um, so I certainly You'll have to chat to the guys at uh, Pivot and Runway Geelong to get that introduction. I know, I know. Well, I'm hoping if our stand is um, impressive enough, he'll come over and then we can get that, <laughs> take I'm that sure selfie. I'm sure he will. I've heard he's a really nice guy. Yes, yes, I, I, have, I have to. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you are super busy. This has been an incredible episode and I know you've got a baby coming on Friday. So all I can say is all the best. I wish you all the best because I know you're taking a fair bit of leave, which is fabulous news, but I do hope that you come back maybe in a year or so to talk about, you know, some of the technologies that have advanced and, um, yeah, we can revisit some of the conversation. Thank you, Lizzie. It's been great and great to talk to you and, um, yeah, I hope to speak again soon.